0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera, Ghostlight podcast. A behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. And this is a special Ghostlight edition, opera preludes version.
0: We're talking about Tosca, Carol.
1: Yes, my probably my well, I, I want to say my favorite Puccini, but all my Puccinis are my favorite. Isn't
0: your favorite Puccini the one you've just done most recently? Exactly. Yeah. You
1: remember that from other ones. Yeah. It's people always ask me, "What's your favorite opera?" And I'm like, "What am I working on?" That's my favorite opera. Exactly. So my favorite opera right now is Tosca. We started rehearsals yesterday.
0: Well, speaking of Puccini. I, Tell us a little—I know people don't need to hear this, but let's talk a little bit about Puccini, the man, and his place. Yeah, I mean,
1: he's obviously one of the significant figures of 19th century into the 20th century Italian opera. He uh, was born in 1858, died in 1924 with his final opera, Turandot Unfinished. Yeah. When he had his first critical successes, he was identified by Italian journalists as the heir of Verdi, really taking the dramatic work that Verdi did coming away from numbers, operas that were very um, stilted and historical subjects into more naturalistic subjects. And Puccini just took that work a little bit further. Um, there's a particular term for that yeah. called
0: verismo. Right, right. So this, this, the way I describe this word, and I want you to tell me if I'm right about this, verismo in opera means no kings, no gods. It's basically about real people, real stories, right? It's like cinema verite in that way. Exactly. It's a documentary style of unadorned storytelling. No nonsense, no artificiality, just straight to the point.
1: Sometimes I even like to call it ripped from the headlines. Fly and on the wall
0: is another way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are
1: li- literally some operas, some verismo operas that were taken out of newspaper stories and um an opera was created out of it like a right. I feel like Il Tabarro might be one of those. The Cloak? Yes, we one just, of the Puccini operas and yeah. uh you know they they'd find some story about, you know, some hi- hideous murder and then they'd mm-hmm. make an opera about it. Some of the Verismo operas, there are some historical subjects, like Andrea Chénier. It's based sure. in the French Revolutionary War.
0: But it's meant to be a much more grounded approach to storytelling, exactly. not as not as fantastical, not as much um, sort of supernatural or. Um, non-human aspect. Right.
1: I mean, it's about real people, right. even if they are they happen to be historical figures, but real people right. having real relationships. Right.
0: So what's the story of Tosca just in a nutshell?
1: Uh, well, I love the way George Bernard Shaw characterized it. He didn't characterize this about Tosca, but I think it's a great description. He was always good for uh, some bon mot. Oh, yeah. And he described opera as when a soprano and a tenor are attempting to make love and they are prevented from doing so by a baritone. And that's essentially the plot of Tosca.
0: It's essentially the plot of opera.
1: (laughs) It's truth. Truth. (laughs) I mean, uh, there are are obviously quite a lot more details. And um, most of the people that are listening, I think you're going to be familiar out there with the story of Tosca But we, of course, have. I don't want to call it a love triangle. It's a love-lust triangle. We have two lovers. It's a
0: triangle, but there's not a lot of love there, and one at least on one leg. One of, of the yeah. legs has
1: yeah. great amounts of love, and then the yeah. other two do not. Yeah. So we have Mario Cavaradossi, a painter, and Floria Tosca, an opera singer. And they are longtime lovers. Are, they're established lovers at the beginning of the opera. I don't know how long they've been together. Mm-hmm. And then there is the Roman chief of police, Scarpia, the Baron Scarpia, who lusts for Tosca and uh, incidentally, there's a whole revolutionary aspect to this. Right. The Napoleonic Wars are going on. This takes place on a very specific date in history, yeah. June 17th to 18th, 1800. And um, so the the Mario and Baron Scarpia are on two different sides in this revolutionary conflict. Uh, Scarpia is uh, – well, let's get into the history of it all, and I'll try to give you the, the details. So at this particular time in history – we were in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. Right. Um, Napoleon had helped establish in Rome a sort of – not a triumvirate, a septumvirate, I guess – seven consuls who were leading a Roman republic. And the when the French forces then deoccupied – that's probably not the word – Unoccupied Rome, the Kingdom of Naples swooped in. We were still a bunch of Italian separate city states, swooped in and took over Rome and was trying to control from that. Then um, Napoleon was working on an Italian invasion at that time uh, against the Austrian forces. And there was a particular battle, the Battle of Marengo, June 14th, 1800, that took place in the Piedmont region, which I looked up. It was about 200 miles, or no, 200 kilometers from Rome, mm-hmm. northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a premature report that Melas and the Austrian forces had defeated Napoleon, which, of course, led to great rejoicing amongst those who were supporting the kingdom of Naples because it meant that uh, they would be able to keep their power, and that thusly is uh, Baron Scarpia. Mm -hmm. But uh, Cavaradossi was a revolutionary. He was a supporter of the Napoleonic side. And then, of course, when the word comes in Act Two that – the rumors of Napoleon's defeat were premature and that he is actually the vincitor, Bonaparte vincitor, then, of course, that means that Scarpia's power, the kingdom of Naples, is going to be deposed and um, the Napoleonic era will sort of take over in Italy a little bit more.
0: No, I, I think it's amazing that he's choosing to tell such a small story on this grand stage because this is the moment where Napoleon kind of became... Napoleon. This is where he established himself as first consul. This is where he was able to really remake France in his own image. At this point, this his his grip was tenuous until he had this victory. Pushing the Austrians out of Italy was a big, big, important step for him. And this small story is being told on that massive canvas, which I think is verismo in its purest form.
1: Right. So, um, and I appreciate that you can chime in because I, by no means, and possibly you've all figured that out from by my explanation. I, by no means, fancy myself a Napoleonic expert. <laughs> well. <clears throat> but it's also very convoluted to try to read through all of those is, things. And is. I remember being finding that that whole era was a bit convoluted yeah. back when I was doing world history in high school.
0: I remind and I like, you and our listeners that we're setting up for an opera. We're setting up the this, this story of an opera here. So, oh, so we're not
1: we're not historical experts. Absolutely Thank not. Thank goodness for reminding me of that. Absolutely not. So um, I went on that whole revolutionary thing to give you the idea that, of course, then in this triangle... Cavaradossi and Scarpia are obviously on opposite sides of Mm -hmm, the political, mm -hmm. uh, you know, confrontation that's happening. So, Scarpia wants Tosca. Tosca's with Mario. Mario and Scarpia are against each other. There's torture. There's um, bargains struck. Uh,
0: There's lies told. Uh, Yeah.
1: He, you know, uh, Cavaradossi is a criminal, according to Scarpia, so he's ordering him to be executed, and yeah. Tosca kind of pops in and mm-hmm. doesn't pop in. I mean, there's a whole major confrontation where Cavaradossi is being tortured offstage. Yep. Ca- Tosca is being manipulated by uh, – Scarpia is evil. And finally, she strikes a horrible bargain herself for the life of Cavaradossi. Scarpia thinks he's won. He's very smug. He says, tosca finalmente mia, you are finally mine. Well, she has figured out that there is a sharp knife on the dining table, and she has hidden it in the folds of her gown. And so, Scarpia's triumph is very short-lived, and uh, himself as well is short-lived.
0: <laughs> Gowns and sharp knives, two Gowns very common knives. things in opera.
1: But then, of course, uh, you know, spoiler alert, Scarpia has his final kind of twist to this. There's a he twist does. in Act 3. Yep. Yep. Tosca thinks she's bargained for Cabralosi to be executed in a mock execution where it's going to be the firing squad will fire blanks. And uh, Scarpia says, of course, that's what we're doing. But you can tell there's a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge with his henchman that's organizing that in act two. Um, There's a whole thing about... Un'ecisione come Palmieri. Obviously, Palmieri was another mock execution that went awry back Mm -hmm. in the day.
0: Just like Palmieri, yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. So Tosca and Cavaradossi have a triumphant reunion in Act Three where they're celebrating the fact that they're going to go away together. And the firing squad comes out, and we see that, spoiler alert, the blanks are not blank. Yeah. So Scarpia has had his revenge. Cavaradossi is no longer going to be living and Tosca will not be with Cavaradossi so what's her decision then they're coming to arrest her for the murder of Scarpia she's on top of the Castel Sant'Angelo overlooking the Tiber she has one way out and she takes it and we'll talk more about that a little later. Well,
0: why wait till later? Let's jump okay, in let's right talk now with that because I think this is
1: one of the most famous leaps in anything. I think
0: it's yeah one of the most famous leaps in all entertainment exactly. And it's it didn't just start with the opera. It obviously happened in the play. That is the source material for this, which we definitely will get to in a moment. But I find the leap. A very fascinating part of the Tosca story because how it's done technically, how it's done physically by the artist is Mm -hmm. something that has fascinated me. In fact, I I wrote an article that people will see in the program book for this production if they go um, about the leap and the lore of it and about certain sopranos over time who refused to do it, certain sopranos who committed fully, just flinging themselves off of whatever set piece was put in place for them. And I love sort of digging into all the different ways that um, The Sopranos are caught, you know, by oh, by yeah. nets or by crash pads or by all sorts of means. I mean, have you had any interesting history with The Leap? I don't want to give away any secrets for this current well, production. No, but.
1: why not? People, that's they're listening to this to get the secrets. Right. So the way it's done in this particular production, and this is probably a lot of productions. Um, so obviously we're not at the height of the Castel Sant'Angelo. It's a huge... Edifice. I mean, I've is, been
0: there. I've stood there and looked up and thought, it's wow, giant. she definitely would have died. It's a
1: mausoleum <laughs> yeah. uh, that was built by Hadrian right. to entomb him himself and his family members. And then it was uh, alternately all sorts of a, yeah. a prison, a repository of treasures. And yep. it's a giant sort of cylindrical building over mm-hmm. the Tiber. So the fall is not – the leap is not small. No. So we don't usually have that exact – Amount of space. In fact, the the set for Act Three is usually the top of the Castel San Angelo, with the and often the there is a set piece that is representing the statue of Saint Michael that's on top of that. Right. So you're just the stage level is the top, and so if they jump, you know, obviously they've got about two or three feet to go. So basically, she jumps off the wall onto a crash pad, and Mm -hmm. then has to do a quick tuck and roll. So that she gets out of the way of anything you know and you can always add clever lighting and such right. like that to to fix that
0: right
1: uh different productions have different heights for the soprano to sometimes leap from. they
0: really jump yeah
1: I yeah. mean and of course it's each soprano sometimes a soprano will hurl herself into space with great aplomb sometimes yeah. she will just sort of walk off the wall depending on because I mean you know granted I mean opera singers are trained to Sing to do all these things in uh, different languages to walk on stage, but they're not really stunt people. And this is actually like a stunt. Yeah. this is a legit stunt. Uh, what are some of? the I'm just thinking. You you talk about some of the funny ways that this leap well, has happened.
0: Not so not so funny as much as just really creative. I mean, yeah. there were certain there were certain sopranos, um, uh, Montserrat Caballé. Is that how you say her last name? Yes.
1: She wouldn't jump, would she, she? would
0: not jump. She refused. She just would walk off stage. She would sweep off. She would just walk off stage and not even pretend to act like it was a jump. So they had to do all sorts of lighting effects and sort of visual trickery to make it look like she has just disappeared over the parapet. <laughs> I'm trying to she imagine that refused. moment
1: because yeah. it's super dramatic in the piece. It's She screams, "Oscarbia, yeah. Avanti Dio, I will see you before God. And exactly. then there's music from the tenor aria comes out very... Um, passionately, and it's very dramatic. Yep. And so I'm just trying to imagine you'd have to be very clever with your lighting and your curtain work.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, to make that work. I, another soprano, Renata Tabali, apparently she never leaped, but that's a great source of mystery. Some people swear they saw her do it once. Other people claim no way she never did. So, I mean, the leap, the meta aspect of the leap has become as much a part of the Tosca story as anything Scarpia does to Tosca herself. So, I There's
1: one urban legend about a Tosca that angered the stage crew hugely.
0: Yes. Okay. So that's what you meant when you were talking about funny. So, So the urban legend is that the stage crew was upset with the Tosca for who knows what reason and replaced the crash pad with a trampoline or something that was very physically reflective so that when the Tosca leaped, she actually bounced back up into audience view three or four times. <laughs> no one can really trace where that happened,
1: down. but it said that it did.
0: I don't know if it's true, but I want it to be so badly. It's just one of those great stories. But speaking of stories, let's talk, um, Carol, about the the source material because it the source material involves a very famous leap of its own with the greatest star of the day, Sarah Bernhardt.
1: Yes, Sarah Bernhardt was um, – Well, the play was written by Victorien Sardou. It was premiered in 1887, a huge success. Sardou had uh, a grandfather who had served as a surgeon in the Napoleonic army. And so he was obsessed with this time of history. So he has about six of his 60 or 70 plays focus on this story, uh, this time period. So uh, he had already written several star vehicles for Sarah Bernhardt. So La Tosca, as the play was called, was written specifically for her to take the lead role. Uh, It was a Huge audience success. Critics called it all sorts of things. My favorite, um, our friend George Bernard Shaw. (laughs) Yeah, back uh, to him. uh, Wrote some criticism about it. Well, one of the French critics of the premiere called it a vulgar piece without intrigue, without characters, without morals. So, mm. and then uh, at the London premiere, uh, George Bernard Shaw deplored the play as an empty-headed turnip ghost of a cheap shocker. (laughs)
0: If that's not the most 19th century set of words, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, presciently, he did also say, and it would make a really good opera. Absolutely. So, I mean, we give him a little credit for seeing that. Yep. So Sarah Bernhardt was the original Tosca. That original uh, run in Paris went about 200 performances. And then it became a star vehicle for her to tour the world and for other um, great actresses of the time. So she actually toured it for about 30 years. She Mm -hmm. did this role. In Rio de Janeiro, she um, broke her leg during the famous leap. During the leap, yeah. And uh, this was an issue for her for years, and eventually she lost her leg. It had to be amputated. It yeah, it never, it never healed, healed correctly. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, she did it. I think this this play actually enjoyed a history all the way a performance history all the way up through like the twenties, the nineteen twenties, and there were uh, silent movie versions of mm-hmm. it. I found uh, that there was a British parody called "Trolala Tosca." <laughs> I don't know what that entailed, but I just like saying the title. Absolutely. So, yes, Sarah Bernhardt had the leap that went bad.
0: Well, between the trampoline and Sarah's leg, which you'll have to read my article to find out what happened to that leg, it was found. um, There's all this incredible story that, you know, sort of follows this. And before you leave the play behind, I want you to read everyone that review that the American critic gave to the play. Oh, my goodness. Which is maybe the best of all.
1: There was an American critic who was uh, giving a content warning. Content warnings are not new. Right, They're So not. we're not, you know, the the people of the 21st century were not the first snowflakes, so <laughs> if you want to say that. Yeah. But uh, an American critic said he was specifically checking in with, you know, warning his audiences of delicate sensibilities, mm-hmm. the females, of mm-hmm. course, because we are very delicate, we females. He warned the audiences of scenes, quote, not only shocking to the nervous system and grossly offensive to persons of true sensibility – but which might inflict irreparable injury on persons yet unborn. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) A play so vulgar, it's going to ruin the life of your kid that you haven't even had yet. (laughs) Exactly. Incredible. You know, Carol, I think part of what people react to, what they call vulgar in the play and maybe the opera to a certain degree, are the, are the aspects of it that feel very real, that feel very human because we're, look, we're looking at real people doing real terrible things and suffering real tragedies. It's meant to be something we recognize as a world we might be able to inhabit. So talk a little bit about Puccini's commitment to that kind of storytelling and how it's so well reflected in Tosca in particular.
1: I think that uh, Puccini was an incredible man of the theater. I think he gets a, a bit short shrift because he wasn't necessarily a musical innovator but he took – he was aware of musical innovations and he used that. But he, but one of the things that gets overlooked is what an amazing sense of theater he had. And he was incredibly involved in the creation of every libretto that he worked with, possibly, you know, t- driving some of his collaborators in a little bit nuts sure, with just the yeah. details he wanted. So for – if you look through his operas, Madame Butterfly has actual Japanese folk tunes in it, like the famous tune Sakura, Cherry Blossoms. Same thing in Torandot in – Tosca, the verisimilitude, doesn't come in the form of musical excerpts, with one notable exception, but he has gone to an incredible amount of trouble to honor and recreate Rome of that day. Mm -hmm. So we have the historical bits that are put in the story. He has three very specific locations where the action takes place. Sardou had five acts with a little bit more, it was a little bit more bloated, and Puccini and his librettist collaborators sort of slimmed it down, Uh, he has a shepherd boy setting the stage for dawn at the end, at the beginning of the first act, sorry, at the beginning of the third act. And he was like, well, okay, a shepherd boy in Rome is not going to speak proper Italian because he's a peasant. So I'm going to make sure that the librettists write in the Roman dialect, Mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, At the very famous te deum, which ends the first act, this is a te deum that is a religious ceremony to celebrate the premature knowledge of Melas's victory, right, and the church, uh, he researched the liturgy. He researched the organization of a religious processional so that it looked exactly right. Who would be there? What they would wear? How it would be done? He wanted. Um, Italian uh, Latin phrases to be chanted and when he couldn't find the one he wanted he added his own so there's these sort of mutterings of the chorus uh, as Scarpia is singing about his it's actually kind of an amazing dramatic thing because Scarpia is singing of his lust for Tosca in the church and everybody else is worshiping and celebrating in a very um, devout way he researched the bells of um, St. Peter's Basilica yeah for that todayum, So we have a B-flat and an F. Uh, in fact, for the bells... Those bells
0: were problematic in productions later yes, on, right? Yeah. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Because um, there's also a whole set of bells in um, the third act that uh, also, along with the shepherd way, are showing you what Roman Dawn would sound like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found a YouTube video that kind of uh, it's just like someone's travel video, you know, that they did out their hotel win- window. But uh, you hear the different bells from different locations. And actually, yeah. Puccini went to the Castel Sant'Angelo at dawn and listened to what bells were being played. Yeah. And took note of all of that and that insisted that specific bells be cast to match all of these pitches. And no one even notices. It's incredible. A huge amount of expense went yeah. into it in that first production. And
0: frustrated producers later... <laughs> To try yes, to I mean, yeah.
1: every single production of Tosca I've been involved with has long, drawn-out conversations about the Bells. About the
0: Bells, yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you something that—I'm it, um, it, it, not even sure you agree with the premise, so we'll see where this question goes. But I, I find—look, there's a lot of operas whose whose settings in libretti sort of lend themselves to to freedom in terms of location, time, time. Um, uh, all sorts of different aspects in terms of how the story is told. That you can you can see these stories modernized. You can yeah, see Fidelio
1: set in a communist country. Absolutely,
0: stuff like that. Updating. I, I find Puccini's operas less less available for that kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? For just for that kind of uh, manipulation. Yeah, and, with
1: a different sort of take on a production. And do
0: you think that's because of what you're talking about right now? His attention to detail, how much a student of the game he was, whenever he took on a topic.
1: I think there's definitely that component. I mean, certain frankly, someone I know has done a production of Bohem that was set on the moon. So, I mean, obviously people, people have figured out ways yeah. to do it.
0: I just don't think it works as well. I
1: was trying to do some research, you know, and of course on the internet the algorithm shows you, you know, you're not going to see everything that's available, but right. I kept when I was researching Tosca images thinking about this exact same thing. I've never seen or please, if you can find one on the internet, please put it in our show comments. Because mm-hmm. I haven't been able to find a Tosca that was set in any period other than June 17th, 18th, 1800. That's kind of the question i It's never I'm been updated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to, you know, I've seen butterflies getting a whole, I mean, it's a whole conversation in and of its own about how you're going to do a butterfly or a dot production. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: or, or whether you should. Or whether you should. Yeah. That's a whole... Yeah. That's another podcast. It is. Yeah. For,
1: and that's not for us to discuss. That's for smarter people than us yeah. to um, talk about. But, um, I, yeah, it's just... You know, I've, we've done... I've seen any number of Fidelias. I, can, I brought that up because I've seen that done in like a Nazi Germany kind yeah. of uh, aspect. And I've seen it done in kind of a Cold War era Slavic country. Mm-hmm. I've seen... Marriage of Figaro done and everything from turn of the 18th century up to, you know, mid-century modern. So, but it just doesn't work for Tosca. That's my feeling. Everything is an umpire waist gown. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, speaking of specific productions, let's talk about the Utah opera production. What should people be looking forward to with this iteration of Tosca?
1: The most spectacular part of this production are the immaculately and Intricately detailed painted drops. Yeah. Uh, whenever we talk about this production, we talk about the lost art of scenic painting in this manner. Uh, they're painted by the Italian master Ercole Sormani, and they've been uh, restored over the years because they, they're they're a bit on the venerable side. But the depth and the um, it's got that kind of. Um, Darkness of a sort of old master, mm-hmm. and then this amazing depth to where you think that you're actually in an intricate set of Sant'Andrea della Valle, the church. You can see the perspective of the nave, and the length of the church. It's really just quite spectacular in a way that we don't see so much anymore. I mean, uh, modern. It's it's just a lost art. I think. I think we have, we have a wonderful painter, uh, Dusty. Who um, does a beautiful job with um, painting any drops, or she, she was incredibly involved in uh, creating the drops that Valley West uses for their most recent nutcracker. And so we have some of that happening, but uh, this, this master, this Italian master, really, we get to recreate and restore and honor. Some theatrical history.
0: I think Carol, there's a reason why the old houses still pull out these Italian painted drops. When you can do so much with modern technology, it's almost like a vinyl record, isn't it? There's something pure about it.
1: It really is. So it's there's no gimmicks. There's no. um, It's kind of um, theatrical stagecraft as it's been for centuries. As opposed to, you know, we do productions that have projections, um, so many uh, bells and whistles that technology has enabled us to add. But we don't want to lose the art of the days of yore. I mean, no. Do we want little candle footlights at the edge of the stage? No. No. But there's a lot between the little footlights and the little Baroque god floating on a cloud and, you know, everything being done prior projections.
0: Well, Carol, I don't know about you, but... Between the leap and the drops, and all of this research, which you and I aren't historians, but we sure do love historians, I'm just so excited for this version of Tosca. Tell people where they can learn a little bit more.
1: So, not to toot my own horn, but I've written some fascinatingly insightful online learning materials Agreed. that will that are posted on our uh, on the Learn More tab for Tosca. So, take advantage of that using on uh, the UtahOpera.org website. One of my favorite things is uh, that our director from the 2015 production allowed me to use her research photos. They're essentially tourist photos of the locations in Rome. So I created a little um, video tour of those locations that's part of one of those online units. So I hope you'll look at those. And uh, then, you know, come see the show, the drama, the torture, the romance, all on the stage. (laughs) The leap. And the leap. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening to our opera prelude version today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Be sure to visit USUO.org for information about upcoming performances. We hope to see you soon for a live performance. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson.
0: And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at usuo.org. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.